Saturday day. Oh yeah. Real, uh, real somber. Mm. This drama of uh, baseball and just mastering your destiny and uh, giving your all. It's a Pokemon League of their own. A Pokemon League. <laughs> Yeah, because you got you got to be the best, and you do want to so, catch so them what, all. Ideally, what, what position does Bulbasaur play? That's the question. I mean, obviously Pikachu's a pitcher. Uh, Bulbasaur's grounding third. third guys, base. I don't know enough about Pokemon or baseball to play this game. I'm so sorry. I would love to. I would love to go on this riff journey with you, but I am ill-equipped. That's okay. Chance is an umpire. Smartest. Okay, so the smartest player on the field is always the catcher. So the smartest Pokemon is uh, Mewtwo. Mewtwo. Right? Yeah. Mewtwo. So Mewtwo's now catching. Mewtwo's a team manager. <laughs> <laughs> Just showing up, slouched, yeah. ready to roll. Uh, what are we doing here? Checks out. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genrecast. We gather around a table. We discuss the films you'll never discuss in film studies course, and I think that's definitely the case with this week's film, A League of Their Own, um, starring Tom Hanks and Gina Davis. Continue. I was about to say it's starring Gina Davis. Sure. It's, uh, continuing our with. Uh, with Tom, with, Hanks. with Tom Hanks and yeah, Lori Petty, more Lori Petty. Just mm-hmm. can't can't stay away from her. And so we're continuing our dream of Gina m- marathon. And so we're very very excited to be doing just that. I'm Woo! still Dustin. Mm. I'm still Arthur. Still Dalton. Woo. Woo-hoo. Sleepy bo- sleepy boys today. Sleepy sleepy boys. So I have it on a Monday yeah. after work. Well, after you saw wrestling. Yeah, yeah. that's fun. Exhaustion. But uh, was a hoot. if you're tuning into the show for the very first time, we are not going to avoid spoilers. So Oops. if you want to know what the destiny of the Rockford Peaches ends up being um, by discovering it through watching the film, then uh, this podcast will spoil that in advance for you. If, so sorry about that. Yeah, if, if, you, if you're wondering whether or not this is one of those movies where Tom Hanks pees, boy, howdy is it. He <laughs> does pee. I go into every Tom Hanks movie wondering if this is going to be the one. There's a lot of movies where, where he, he urinates. Uh, you got your Green Mile. <laughs> His urination's a heavy factor in there. Pretty sure in Castaway we got a lot of Tom Hanks pee. There's a lot of movies where Tom Hanks pees. This That's is a, a marathon thing. in and of itself. Movies where Hanks pees. Well, yeah. uh, famously, Penny Marshall was running uh, the water uh, for his uh, pee sound effect, and Tom Hanks did not actually know when it was going to be oh, over himself. Oh, that's so funny. And so he, he just, just had to act it the whole keeps time. Keeps going with it. Beautiful. Which, which is why it's so Looney Tunes it's the way so he does funny. it. Yeah. So, that makes sense. So good. Hey, thanks for that tidbit. So, yeah. So, yeah, if you don't know anything about uh, A League of Their Own, uh, that's okay. You can still listen. But, yeah, if you want to go in uh, unspoiled now, is probably a good time to get out. Although, uh, Dustin, you want to give them the, the, the big rundown on, on how that's going to work? Well, what we'll do is we'll do a synopsis, which will be spoiler-free. We'll do our quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, which are spoiler-light. Then we uh, begin to expand the syllabus, which is spoiler-moderate. And then uh, we get into severe spoiler-warning territory. It's like the tornado warnings, it seems, today. Yeah. Uh, as we get down to business and get into analysis. As the storm uh, bears down upon us. The cyclone of film criticism um, sort of gets to its uh, I, I this guess. is a weird metaphor. I don't like it. Uh, so there you go. That's what's about to happen. So let's hear that synopsis, Mr. Arthur Gordon, please. <clears throat> the year is 1942, and America's home-run heroes have gone off to neutralize that nasty Nazi Adolf J. Hitler. With the boys in uniform out of the country, a distressed, downtrodden nation wonders, what will it take the place of their favorite pastime? Send in the dames. Penny Marshall's 1992 story of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League is anchored on sisters Dottie and Kit. The two get recruited to try out for a fledgling upstart that is sure to wet whistles until the Yanks, Dodgers, and all return. The girls are selected to join an ensemble featuring Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell as the Rockford Peaches, coached by a slosh Tom Hanks. This comedy classic features family fighting, rambunctious rugrats, and a gaggle of goyles too good for this world. Wow. That was so much to uh, fun. All right. You have fun tonight. I'll see y'all later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You did your job, man. Yeah, just drop you that You uh, 110%, buddy. That was uh, amazing. Perfect. So, yeah, that's what the movie's about. So, uh, it, let's talk about it. It's uh, one of them sports pictures. Do you like A League of Their Own? Why or why not, Arthur? Uh, I really did, actually. I'd never seen this one. I'm, I'm really happy about this marathon because I don't know that I've seen any of these movies. Uh, 
other than the fly, I, I think the rest of them are going to be blind spots. And so uh, I was very excited. I'm a big baseball, uh, not big baseball fan. I like baseball. I do enjoy the sport. I think it's a, a relaxing, fun watch. Uh, but I'm a big sports movie guy. I, I really enjoy the sports movie. I, it's a fun genre uh, when done well, and, and I think this is done very well. It's it's a great ensemble, as mentioned, uh, uh, with Gina Davis leading off uh, with Tom Hanks and uh, Lori Petty, Madonna, Rosie O'Donnell, John Lovitz, uh, and and the hits just keep coming. And it is a hoot and a and a holler uh, for for a good while. You know, I, I don't have much negative. I, I'm not a huge fan of the bookends that wrap around. Ooh, yeah. Uh, especially the beginning is is pretty rough. Uh, but the uh, the the finale part hits those emotional beats well. I think as they're at the Hall of Fame uh, memorial thing, uh, and and I think that works the way it's supposed to work. Um, that movie once it kicks off, and Gina Davis. Uh, I I watched this before the fly uh, a couple weeks ago, and I think I fell in love with. Uh, Gina Davis here, uh, the the Roxford Peach uh, version, and Gina Davis is just so so good here. She is a delight, uh, wonderful performer. She she does this nice stoic uh, straight straight that guy smoldery intense face of Gina yeah. Davis. Wow, um, just knocks it out of the park, <laughs> if you will. And uh, I mean, everybody here is so good. Madonna's great. Uh, Rose, I'm I'm not usually a big fan of Rosie O'Donnell, but I, I like her here. She she does a good job um, in her bit role. And, and I mean Tom Hanks. I mean uh, Tom Hanks and Gina Davis together are just a, a blast, and and I like that relationship and the way that dynamic plays here in this film. Uh, the 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 uh, extended cameo by Bill Pullman. Mm. Um, I, I love Bill Pullman, and so I'm always glad when he shows up in something, and so it was fun to see him here. Uh, he was a veteran who later becomes president and then defends the uh, world against aliens. Yes, that's true. Canon. Yes, um, that but... is that is the thing that happens at the end of this movie. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I I don't really have much negative to say outside of that bookend. I, I I think it works very well as a comedy. I think it works very well as a sports movie. It's doing a lot. It's doing this kind of family drama between the sisters, and it's doing this. You know, what's your purpose? With you know, do you want to play baseball? Or why are you doing this? And so it, it's doing a lot, and I think it for the most part balances a lot of those those threads fairly well. Uh, I laughed a lot, uh, which is the main purpose of this movie, I think. I was moved emotionally. And so, yeah, I have nothing uh, nothing but respect for uh, Penny Marshall's A League of Their Own. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, um, what do you think? Do you like A League of Their Own or not? I do. It's fun. As Arthur said, I think there's a lot going on here and a lot to like. Uh, the, the drama between Laurie Petty and Gina Davis is great. Uh, Gina Davis... Um, kind of, as Arthur said, really does have to play the role of straight woman here because everybody else is uh, playing at such a high intensity, especially Rosie O'Donnell. Um, and then um, the character of Marla, like there's just a lot of very arch comedy going on around her. Uh, so yeah, letting her have that performance be a little bit toned down from everybody else, I think is is really effective. Uh, I want to be loved by you. Yes, only you, nobody else but you. Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. It's great. Um, early Hanks is just wild. Uh, you you got to love an early Tom Hanks, uh, and this is right before Philadelphia. Uh, and yeah, same year, Gump. right? Yeah, yeah. Your year before, same year, year before. Yeah, it's 92. It's the same year, I'm pretty sure. Okay, but it's, it's right around that Joe versus the Volcano, Turner and Hooch uh, phase of his career um, yeah. where he's not uh, America's lovable dad. So watching him... Uh, play terrible for pretty much the entire movie is fun. I he, I don't think he really ever does have a fully redeeming moment, which I think is interesting uh, and honestly works for what this movie's going for. Obviously, it being the 40s, there's a lot made here of uh, 40s misogyny. Um, and I think that the film does an okay job connecting that to, to the ways in which uh, in the 90s society is still having problems and we still are today, but it definitely does seem to be a, don't worry, we'll, sol we'll solve it in, in two hours. Um, we, we fixed all these problems. Uh, and I, I think that's why the bookends maybe don't work for me as well as they do for you, Arthur. I agree. The wraparound kind of does put a nice sentimental bow on things, but then there's just like this weird sentimental montage of photos of Gina Davis and Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell and Lori Petty acting like they're the, it's, it's, if it were pictures of the, the real members of, of the women's league, you'd be like, oh, okay, I guess this kind of makes sense. But it basically just reads as a love letter to the movie you just watched, which is weird and I don't yeah. care for. Um, th th there's some stuff, I think, once we get into uh, analysis, that's really where the movie breaks down for me is uh, 
just when we talk about the the themes that it's trying to tackle, I don't think it does a great job at, at times. Um, uh, to, to, to give you a little primer on that, honestly, I just think uh, Penny Marshall's a little bit too mean to characters like Marlon and Mrs. Cuthbert. It's a little gross. Like, it's v- it, it thinks it's very cute that Tom Hanks keeps harassing Mrs. Cuthbert, and it's not cute. I loved you in The Wizard of Oz. I mean, that's funny, but he, he just, like, <laughs> he smooches on her when he's half-passed out, is pinching her ass all the time, and is, like, keeps making jokes about how, oh, don't worry, I'm going to come sit next to you on the bus. Like, it is, it's weird. It's weird, and it doesn't, and again, it's this movie's mean to the character of Marla, like, aggressively so. Um, and again, it's always played for laughs. It's not played for, oh, this character's going to learn a lesson about not judging people on their appearance. Uh, and again, the character's... Are the you know the the other female leads are mostly supportive like uh, Dottie and um, oh my gosh Kit are are very nice to her when they meet her but the movie just is not shy about making her a punchline and that kind of rubbed me the wrong way uh, but again I'm with you Arthur I think it works really well uh, it is hard we talked about this off air last week uh, you mentioned it's kind of hard to do a baseball montage because there's only so many things that can happen in a baseball game but I th- I think this film has some pretty choice montage work in it uh, i think it does a great job of showing the progression of time which is its job it's also just zippy and fun uh and that would really describe this entire movie i think it's it's a ton of it's a ton of fun um and what, what more do you want everybody's giving it their all and doing these very fun 40s affectations especially uh rosie and Lori petty the two of them are just making everybody else super work for it uh, because they are doing these 40s accents that are great so yeah it's it's a good time Alrighty, well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I love baseball. Um, it's come up before. We do know and that. And this yeah. is a good baseball movie. So, yeah, I had a lot of time, a lot of fun watching this uh, movie. I had a lot of time. I had a good time, or I had a lot of fun, one or the other, or perhaps both. And uh, so, yeah, enjoyed it uh, thoroughly on the rewatch. Um, Tom Hanks peeing for hours is always a good time for me. Um, those uh, performances, as we've already mentioned, are great. Uh, there is a way in which it does do the thing that Dalton's talking about that's a little frustrating, this idea we're going to solve misogyny by the end of the movie. And uh, that is sort of the way baseball narratives sometimes work. You know, you look at Jackie Robinson movies and those kind of things um, where some sort of white savior shows up and yeah, blah, 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 right? Uh, and it does that. Same kind of thing, and also there's a historical um, sort of looking for that. There's just there's there's a gap in the history as to what was going on. Uh, women's baseball was very popular in the 1940s. Uh, women's baseball was developed not because uh, the major leagues, uh, National League and American League, shut down during World War II. They found plenty of players. Uh, some of the minor league uh, men's leagues uh, did shut down due to the war, but uh, Major League Baseball continued the entire time. Huh. And uh, so, you know, those sort of weird circumstances there don't quite so mesh up. The, the, just so I know, uh, I have the history straight on this. So the, the women's leagues were already a big deal. They just got big promotional pushes because of the war. Is that what you're saying? Uh, they No, it was just, it was popular because there wasn't televised baseball in the late 40s and the 50s. And so regionally, you could go to baseball games and go to more baseball games and uh, less expensively than, say, you know, going to, you know, Detroit and seeing the, you know, the Tigers play or whatever, or mm, Wrigley okay. Field and seeing uh, the Cubs play. Of course, the Wrigleys are uh, the uh, the the what are the Hershey was was the fake bars? Oh yeah, I can't the remember chocolate company. I forget now, but it's it, it it's um it's Doubleday Wrigley's um that they're doing mm-hmm. um that are sort of the monies behind all this, and uh, the league lasts until the mid fifties fifty two fifty four something like that, and uh, basically went away because people could watch uh, men's uh, major league baseball on TV. And so the that sort of baseball need was no longer needed, and so ticket sales went down, and the leagues went away. Gotcha. So that that's really more the factor. It's not the war ending; it's the advent of television. Yeah. Okay. Um, so and again, those those are you know important sort of historical facts, and so it doesn't really of, matter for the movie though. It doesn't yeah. matter because it is a question about sort of this women's rights and uh, this idea of you know a girl can do anything a guy can do kind of stuff that it's wrestling with. But it also really just sort of washes over a lot of history and a lot of uh, places in which women were ignored. And passed over uh there's this weird nod to african-american women uh that is dude so gross tin-eared and yeah not a fan yeah tin-eared is the best way to put it yeah yeah, so i don't don't love that and also the fact that this whole thing has a wraparound at cooperstown there was a uh special exhibition of uh, women's baseball at cooperstown but there are no women in the baseball hall of fame at cooperstown they have a woman's baseball hall of fame for just that and so to not acknowledge that that is a thing that exists 
and the fact that they are still segregated from baseball in, in a great sense uh, is, is, is problematic. And the movie sort of just washes over that and sort of neglects uh, to hit that particular point as well. And so, again, my baseball nerddom a little bit just gets a little frustrated with it. But as a uh, just a piece of cinematic entertainment, it's great. It's fun. I enjoy it. I like the performances. I, it's funny. I laugh. And uh, all those tensions uh, are, you know, worthy of your dramatic interest as you watch the movie. So uh, overwhelmingly, I like it. But historically, a little inaccurate and in ways that sort of do the thing that Hollywood does with the hidden figures or uh, Remember the Titans or whatever kind of movie you're dealing with. It's dealing with some of these uh, old prejudices. It gives us this sentimental, schmaltzy kind of ending that suggests to us. And now because of remembering these stories and remembering these women, we know that we've moved past uh, some of those things in our past. And it kind of gives a sense that the, the struggle is over. And that's problematic but overwhelmingly though i tend to like it so there you go dear listener our biases are pro we like this movie a lot and uh, having a lot of fun with it let's move on and expand our syllabus and so we are teaching a class and a league of their own is this week's film on the syllabus what are we reading what are we watching how are we um um appendicizing um this particular film for a teaching opportunity in a university setting what do you say arthur uh, this this uh, this week is the same week as fall break, and so it's a pretty short week. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so I like how you did that. Yeah, I, uh, I I will say that one of the biggest it really hit me because I had never thought about it, the the enormity of it, but the idea of the celebrity going to war because it's, I mean it's nothing we've seen. Yeah, you know, and, and the last real instance I could think about is you know. Elvis or, or Muhammad Ali, who you know refuses to go, and and so I, I I've listened to uh, the thing that I'm going to recommend in a second, uh, which talks about the Hollywood stars going off to war and the directors going off to war, uh, and it's just the the kind of almost surreal element. I mean, just to think if you know, hypothetically say we went to war with Iran in the next week, and uh, you know, Oof, off, wow. off yeah. ships Leo and Brad Pitt and you know Denzel and John Don David Washington and yeah, it's, all, it's and Adam Driver. You know, like unimaginable. Thing. Yeah, it's just a bizarre. You know, oh, where where are the where are the Rams at? Oh yeah, we shipped them off to Iran too. Like, there's a surrealness to that that these. Yeah. I mean, hero celebrities are being you, shipped off. You very conceivably in the 40s could have gotten shot at alongside with Lee Marvin. Yes. Which is just a wild thing yes, to think like, about. Yes, uh, like, I'm, I'm serving alongside, you know, I don't Tom Hardy or whatever, you know, right? Yeah. And uh, that idea is just wild to me. And so I, I think uh, Karina Longworth does a great job in uh, You Must Remember This when she outlines Star Wars. And she really goes uh, into Hollywood at war and the the front lines of these directors and actors being shipped off to war and finding out John Wayne eh, yeah more on the Trump train than Ooh. anything and uh you know the directors who went to to see all this and how that impacted their relationships how that impacted their filmmaking yeah John and, Ford and John Wayne didn't get along yeah. after the war yeah uh, and so it's it's a fascinating look into that bit of history if you want to really take a deep dive into that little microscopic moment in this movie uh which I think is just fascinating, and you know, hopefully we never see anything like that. But uh, it, fingers crossed. It, yeah, <laughs> just come on. Um, but I, I think that would be my my pairing with this would be uh, the the Star Wars season of uh, You Must Remember This from Karina Longworth. Very good, very good. How would you expand your syllabus, Mister Dalton Stewart? I, I really like that, Arthur. That historical background I, I think is really important, and uh, I'm glad somebody got it because I didn't. Uh, I went a different direction. Uh, with this, just trying to think of some of the, the things that this film is working towards. Um, so the, right off the top, I, I think we got to go with um, last year, 2017 or 2018's I, um, I think is a really, really great film about, um, in a much more subtextual way and in a much more um, background way, it is about the ways in which the world of athletic competition collides with gender, right? I think I, Tanya is doing a lot because figure skating is supposed to be so demure and so feminine. And Tanya Harding was admittedly not those things that they wanted her to be. She was just a damn good athlete. Um, and, and the tension, right. And we get this in a league of their own with the, the skirts that they're expected to play in. And as all the, uh, all the players rightfully point out, how the, how the hell are we supposed to slide in this thing? Um, and again, I think I, Tanya does a really good job of just interrogating, 
Okay, even in a, a, a quote women's sport, uh, although obviously fi- uh, figure skating is uh, you know cross uh, gender lines, and you know sometimes you get multiple people skating together. It's great, but obviously being perceived as a much more feminine sport, even that outside pressure to be a certain way in the the confines of the sport uh, enters in. So I think Itani is really great, uh, and again, it just gets you more into the dark side of greatness. Uh, that I just. You know, A League of Their Own is not that kind of movie. It's not dealing with the rigors of uh, of athleticism. and the, the Although we get a little bit of it, right? We get to see a little bit of the breaks and the injuries and such. Um, but again, Itani is really focused on that dark side of it, and I just think it's interesting. Um, we also got to get uh, Glow, the Netflix series. Uh, nice. We want to talk about athletics that are in a male-dominated field. Obviously, Glow is a great example of that, as is uh, A League of Their Own. And again... Glow much more directly tackling some of the things that are alluded to uh, in A League of Their Own. Glow really getting more into the sexual harassment that's uh, inherent when you have uh, female athletes who are beholden to uh, men uh, financing their operation um, and this pressure to sell through the use of sex and the gays uh, and to be in places where you don't want to be. And again, I think... there's room for that here in a league of their own. I see why they didn't, uh, why Penny Marshall decided not to go that route. I, I know. I think she worked on the screenplay. It had, uh, um, we got two screenwriters, uh, who are both women, but, uh, they ended up just getting a story credit after the initial draft. Uh, but I don't know that Penny Marshall's credited on the final draft. I know there are two men that are, uh, but at any rate, uh, I, I can see why a league of their own doesn't play with any of that stuff. It really doesn't have a whole lot of time for it, but glow gets into it in a way that I think is super interesting. Uh, moving away from sports, I, I, I think the Kit Dottie dynamic in this film is really crucial. It is kind of the the through line emotionally for the film because we do have that opening bookend, and all we know is that Dottie and Kit have tension even in uh, their golden years. Uh, and seeing that relationship unfold as they play together is really interesting. And that that feeling of there being the one that's perfect and the one that can't get it together, even though it is this self imposed dynamic, uh, made me think of. Uh, early Anne Hathaway film, Rachel Getting Married. Uh, it's a film I haven't seen in quite a few years, but a movie I really, really like. Uh, and Again, I think we are um, sorely missing in, in, in good uh, sisterhood films. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong, there are quite a few, um, but uh, so often does that just become what the movie's about. Um, and I think Rachel Getting Married does a great job of letting it be also about other things, uh, but also having that that family tension present. Uh, again, very different story uh, than A League of Their Own, but I think plays with those uh, perceptions of pecking orders within families and especially within uh, sister dynamics. I think is really cool. That that was the first one that came to mind. There's obviously tons, uh, but again, I just there's not enough, and uh, I like A League of Their Own for that reason. And uh, I think Rachel Getting Married is a good suggestion. Uh, last, we are going to exit the realm of film and enter the world of comic books for uh, just trying to find a weird, tenuous connection to expand your your brains. Uh, and we're going to go with Brian K. Vaughn, and I forget who his credit artists are on this, but it's uh, Why the Last Man, um, the Vertigo comic series from ooh, the early 2000s, mid-2000s. I forget when this uh, actually uh, was published. Um, but it's the story of uh, the last man on Earth and what does that world look like? And again, I think A League of Their Own has that, that interesting, what if there's no more men in baseball left? Um, and why the last man answers, asks the question, what if there's no men left, period, except for this one guy? And how does that um, initially plunge society into chaos because people just die? <laughs> Half the population dies immediately. But then how does that force equity to happen? Uh, and how does society get a little bit better because of that? It's uh, it's interesting. And again, I think uh, A League of Their Own and Why the Last Man, while very different stories, are playing in similar ground in that regard. And we'll, we'll talk about supportiveness in this film uh, as we get later into our analysis. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I believe if I were teaching this film, the uh, the section would be on feminism and its various waves, just as an overarching sort of theory. And, and part of the reason why is I think the movie is very much a 90s uh, situated within the third wave of feminism, uh, depicting some events that are happening in the 1940s, which anticipate the second wave of feminism in the wake of the first wave of feminism, and now here we are in our own moment in the fourth wave. And so I think that's a, a way to sort of engage that. And so, I mean, the feminist texts that we would read are some of the classics, right? So Simone de Beauvoir's 
uh, the, the Second Sex, and then also uh, Betty Friedan. I want to get her name right, The Feminine Mystique. I think sections from that ought to be read. And also Laura Mulvey's Visual Ple- Pleasures and Narrative Cinema, in which the idea of the male gaze is developed, uh, would be uh, some major films to do that. I wouldn't show or screen Rear Window, but I would definitely clip Rear, Rear Window quite a bit to demonstrate some of that 50s style of uh, the male gaze and just sort of help the students, you know, wrap their brains around it. But my second film that I would screen is another 90s film. Um, I would starring Hillary Swank, which is Boys Don't Cry. Oh, yeah. And uh, talk about some other kind of gender issues, uh, w- especially with LGBTQIA uh, sort of situations and those things that uh, arise around all of that. And then situate this film uh, being about a moment uh, removed, but also within its own moment. And then looking later at Gina Davis's own work. Work, uh, which is very much fourth wave feminism now um, that she's doing with the Jeannie Way. Gina are, we Davis. In, are we still in fourth? We not we not entered fifth yet. We, as going far on? as I know, we're still in fourth. You're the one that's still in academia. You would know. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I am not as well versed in feminist theory for obvious reasons. Um, but uh, what are those obvious reasons, Dustin? Um, you too can be well versed in feminist theory. I, I, I could be, but <laughs> you know, I, I find Ooh. myself speaking out of school. I, I, know, I was yeah. just resting you. Like, Sorry. <laughs> That's somebody else's playground, and I'm not invited, um, and I'm okay with that. Uh, but from what I understand, we're still in the fourth wave right now, which is what Me Too sort of uh, summarizes it to an extent. We'll talk more about that later, I think. But uh, that's the way I think we would go about approaching this particular film as a text doing some of the things that sort of dapple in all of these various waves of feminism. Well, I don't have a whole lot to say about uh, that gross moment you talked about where the film tries to, like, like throw a glance at uh, the seg- racial segregation of sports. Right. But uh, what you're talking about right now is a, g- a great place to talk about, right? Because you can talk about uh, the the white feminism kind of inherent in those early waves of feminism and that uh, uh, something that women of color have, uh, especially activist women of color, have really pushed against in those early waves of feminism uh, in the ways in which it was not racially equitable. Right. And the third wave of the 90s was where that was beginning to yeah. be acknowledged. And so that is that sort of nod that way. But it does feel very tokenist, oh, you know. It's so bad. I just so it's it's troubling for that reason. I mean, look, we're not making this movie about any of the real women uh, professional ball players. We could have just segregated it or uh, integrated it and said, "Screw it, it's a movie nobody gives." Yeah, shit. I mean, they've they've already kind of you know thrown history out the window anyway. So why Ex- not? Exactly, and that's you know that's everybody's first go to when you make a movie from the about the forties or fifties and don't have a, a racially diverse cast. People go, "Well, the world wasn't." Yes, it was. <laughs> People mm-hmm. still knew each other. See Mudbound. Anyway, I'm ranting now. Very good, very good, though. So those are our thoughts of initially expanding a syllabus and a discussion. Let's actually break out into some analysis right now. Let's get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. And that business is, as always, analysis. I'm very, very excited to be doing this. Um, so I want to do something real quick. Um, I'm going to give a quick primer. On the four waves, oh, okay. and uh, talk about how we could situate this movie because again, it's a movie about the fifties, which is a moment between, or the forties and fifties, uh, which is a moment between the waves themselves, uh, or at least two of them, the first two waves, and is situated in the moment of the third wave, featuring a star actress whose uh, advocacy and her Gina Davis Institute for uh, Gender and, and Media Studies is uh, fully entrenched in this fourth wave that exists. So I think that's an neat way to sort of engage it, but we need to know what we're talking about. We're talking about the wave. So first wave of feminism is the early 1900s. It's Susan B. Anthony. It's suffrage. So it's overwhelmingly uh, European, uh, particularly British and American. It does spread into Australia, New Zealand, places like that. Well, in America, it's so heavily a part of the uh, prohibition movement as well. Right. It very, very closely tied to that. And so it's, it's just about the right to vote. I mean, suffrage is the thing. Uh, there for that moment. And then, of course, uh, we have the World Wars, and uh, the moment between them, the real moment of the second wave is the 1960s. And so it is that sort of egalitarian and sometimes framed as the radical feminist movement. We're talking Gloria Steinem, and we're talking a lot of sort of that major theory that's being written. And so uh, that's when the feminine mystique are being written. That's when Simone de Beauvoir is writing her stuff about uh, the second sex. And so theory begins to be developed into the 70s. That's when Laura Mulvey uh, writes her particular essay. But uh, theory is being produced at this time, but it's not necessarily a a feminism informed by theory. 
history. It is uh, that same sort of we can do what guys can do and uh, we don't have to stay home and be homemakers and June Cleaver and do those kind of jobs. And so the major thrust there is not to gain sort of basic uh, human rights or legal rights. It is about uh, shifting the social um, structure of society in such a way uh, to allow women to do whatever they bloody well please, right? And so that's that moment, uh, which again, I mean, it doesn't go away. I mean, it it culminates in the attempt to uh, to get past the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, which ends up failing. But a lot of other things happen. Roe v. Wade happens, and and all that sort of stuff in the uh, wake of the second wave of feminism. The third wave of feminism is the '90s. And that is a moment in which it is very much informed by those essays and books that we talked about in the 70s. And so a lot of what you see in 90s third wave feminism is that cultural critique kind of feminism, that kind of critique of, uh, where they were, where people are talking about a male gaze in movies, when they're talking about how uh, wedding ceremonies are about the exchange of properties sometimes in the way that they're put together. You know, the, the, those sort of uh, big social critiques. There's also uh, third wave feminism is huge another huge component of it is this this reclaiming of sexuality and the sex mm-hmm. positivity um, right we've also got lilith fair going on which again is part of the the cultural conversation around third wave feminism that the kind vagina of, monologues yeah right. these are all super big i didn't even think about that yeah big components and, and they are becoming more intersectional in the 90s as well and so uh, you know queer issues um obviously the hillary swank uh her performance yeah. as brandon tina um, those things are also very, very uh, important in that moment as well. People of color, the recognition that there was this sort of white liberal um, kind of feminism that needs That's to be interesting. critiqued. My uh, experience, I, I had to double check something. Fourth wave starts in 2012 is kind of the agreed upon date. And Perhaps. I always thought that's kind of the part where intersectionality kind of starts to become a bigger part of the conversation. I, oh, I th- it's intersectional insofar as it's being acknowledged. Gotcha. And people are asking for and beginning to develop more of this sort of stuff. And so you see bell hooks really sort coming to the fore, you know, in that kind of moment where race is also an important component as well uh, to those understandings and also uh, queer theory. Um, so that's that's the third wave. The fourth wave, though, it, because the third wave is so you can almost characterize the third wave as cultural Marxism a little bit. That sort of uh, critic, you know, this is what's going not, not the made up kind that they talk about no. on r slash red pill for the record. No, no, I'm, I'm like Frank's. Frankfurt School kind of stuff, yeah. Where you're looking at pieces of art and you're giving it a Marxist critique, and you're seeing, you know, the the sort of heavy hand of capitalism at work. Uh, that that's a lot of the work of '90s um, third wave feminism. Is just these are the ways in which you give people flowers when you're, you know, a suitor dating. Why? Because they are the vaginas of the flowers uh, of of the plants, and it's it's all sort of phallic and you know those kind of things that are working and circling around uh, some of our basic rights and behaviors. Uh, uh, but once 2012 hits, it becomes much more activist. It becomes much more in the public square, and it becomes much more about accomplishing specific goals. Uh, and again, not that the the second wave was very much this way as well. You know, the Equal Rights Amendment and those kind of goals were also weird that they're still fighting for the Equal Rights Amendment and fourth wave feminism. Yeah, well, not weird. Not but... weird. Yeah, I was being <clears throat> sarcastic. It's predictable and shitty. Yeah, sucks. Uh, but here it is. Uh, beginning to shift uh, I- issues of pay disparity, of hiring disparities, of, of, sh- of shattering glass ceilings, and also uh, bringing uh, t- the legal system to bear against sexual predators like Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement. All of that is the uh, sort of uh, kit and caboodle of what we see in fourth wave feminism uh, right now. Uh, I found out very briefly, double checking that we were still in the fourth wave, that there is apparently um, within the last year or two, people are, uh, and, and you know, look, sometimes you do a think piece for clicks, mm-hmm. um, but there there is a think piecery around about maybe it is time for a fifth wave because the fourth wave is so academic and the, the focus on... Um, Justice and bringing uh, truth to power, these things are kind of a later stage of this most recent wave of feminism. And there's talk of, do we need to refocus and call it a fifth wave because it is so much more uh, about... It's interesting because that, yeah. that's sort of the way I characterize the fourth wave is its activism um, and distinction from the third wave, which is more academic. But the, again, I may not know. Well, again, I'm look, hey, we're flying by the seat of our pants here. We are not experts, as yeah. Dustin already uh, laid out very clearly. But let's situate... This, this is all a good primer, though. Yeah, that, so the, that prim- so the free gift right there for you. Um, you are, you're your primer of the waves of feminism. Um, now, the question is a league of their own. What kind of movie is this? 
I mean, the, that which is interesting, yeah, right? Well, the '90s are already so in love with the '40s and '50s, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we get Pleasantville, we get a Leave It to Beaver movie. I mean, there's there's so much '90s ephemera, and I don't know if this is because we're pre 9/11. I don't know what it is, but there there seems to be this fixation with honestly kind of like what we have with the 80s and 90s right now in popular culture the 90s had that going with the 40s and 50s and 60s sandlot i mean this mm-hmm. is this is the way nostalgia works right um but you're you're right dustin that it is weird because it's nostalgic for a different time and it does it seems to be mostly that second wave to me because it seems yeah. more concerned that first and second wave because it seems much more concerned with the feminism of the day as opposed to the conversations that were happening in the mid-90s. And so it does frame the events of uh, the All-Girls uh, Professional Ball League as a second-wave kind of movement, you know, where we're going to eschew gender roles, we're not going to stay home and, you know, bake bread and make babies and uh, play baseball, which is a man's game. Um, and there's no crying in baseball, which is a very feminine thing to do in response and, and sort of, you know, butt up against those expectations and, and whatnot. And to do so 20 years before Gloria Steinem and that movement, you know, really is a thing that happens, right? And so I I find that to be really, really interesting. And then to be seeing that depiction of, uh, again, sort of an idealization of a uh, a sort of precursor moment, uh, prequel moment, if you will, using movie jargon to describe the the uh, the the 60s second wave within the historical contents of the production of the film being the 90s and the third wave and so what it does then is begin to see and it does do the critique kind of thing we've got the uh, the older lady in her very very fine hat with a little bit of veil on the top giving a radio address talking about girls baseball and uh, scandalous scandalous terrible parts well, yeah, and then this this brings us Mrs. Cuthbert, right? They're mm-hmm. required to have a chaperone at all times because which is true. Murgatroyd. Yeah, I, I'm aware that's true. Yeah, the idea of un- unaccompanied women out in public in uh, 50s America, 40s America is uh, very taboo, apparently. And they had to do charm school classes and those kind of things. And so it's a critique of that kind of femininity, right? And that sort of idealized. Um, patriarchal, patriarchal kind of femininity that Gina Davis and uh, Lori Petty and uh, Rosie O'Donnell and Madonna sort of refused to participate in. And so you do see some of them uh, running back up against that and doing what they want to do the way they want to do it um, and, uh, and doing so in a way that uh, shines a light on the ways in which it is sort of fundamentally broken, that June Cleaver kind of image of what a woman yeah. is to be. Well, I was, uh, I, I'm, the, you know, as you're talking about, I'm thinking a lot about uh, Marilyn Monroe and Some Like It Hot. You know, it's a lot of the same kind of setup. You know, this touring group of proper girls, quote unquote, with the, with their handler and their chaperone, making sure. But you know, she's kind of butting up against that as well. And you know, Billy Wilder is kind of touching on some of this in what, '60s, whatever, '54, '56, '60s, mm-hmm. whatever. So yeah, there's this, also this interesting like dual thing going on, right? Because they go to charm school and uh, get told that a lady reveals nothing and taught the proper way to cross their legs, and then they go to the field for the first time, and then they get to see their uniforms, which is all about them revealing something, right? Um, so it's this this very interesting. Um, your sexuality exists on the the terms and conditions of society. Yeah. Well, they weren't allowed to leave um, in public ever without wearing lipstick. For instance, was one of the sort of strange rules, <laughs> you know, because you got to be dolled up at yeah. all times, you know, if you're going to be seen in public, which is what a lady, quote unquote, looks like. And of course, they're eschewing that kind of lipstick wearing. That you know, uh, Lori Petty's advice to those girls, you know, they want to be baseball players, will go outside, go play, go get dirty, right? It's sort of the opposite of that. Yeah. And, and so that cleanliness and that, again, sort of, uh, you know, you must wear heels at all times, etc., kind of uh, sexual strictures that are placed upon women. Uh, the movie does kind of decode some of what we were seeing in the 40s and 50s. And so I think it does function within that 90s context of doing that same sort of cultural criticism a little bit um, of uh, – you know, of uh, third wave feminism is it, it, it's part and parcel of that, which is interesting. And then to take Gina Davis, right, and say so. This is what Gina Davis does with her Center for Media uh, Studies, and I just I, I want to just give you a few little things here. The Gina Benchmark Study, uh, okay, uh, which is interesting as an idea. It's not as um, 
It's the word I want to look for. It's not as concise as what you might say the the Bechdel test is, mm-hmm. right? And uh, dear listener, if you're not remember, well, don't tell them what the Bechdel test uh, is. Real, real quick, we don't need to get into the the history of where it comes from, although that's super interesting, and you can go learn more about that on your own. But the Bechdel test, very quickly, is does a film feature two women talking to each other about something other than a man for I think two minutes is the I think it's two minutes. Yeah, a, a scene is another. You can just hear a scene will be a, a, another good benchmark for that. But yeah, that's. That's the long and the short of it. And so it's a way of sort of evaluating films. Um, what the Gina Davis Institute does is more statistical analysis, and it is more revelatory of disparity. It is also... How many films starred a woman? Of, yeah. And then revelatory as to uh, films that do star women and how they do financially mm. and how their successes increase. Um, I'll hit you the high points okay. of the latest study. So uh, male leads still outnumber female leads two to one, although it's slightly improved. Uh, family films with female female leads close the gap in domestic box office revenue over the past decade and now earn more than family films with only male leads. So there's more money to make a brave than there is, I don't know, whatever a boy movie would be. Um, when it comes to race, uh, white leads outnumber leads of color four to one. That's not shocking. Box office revenue for family films with leads of color and racially diverse uh, co-leading cast have caught up with and surpassed family films with only white leads. They make more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thanks, few- Fast and the Furious. Fewer than one percent. Family man, it's important. Of family, fewer fewer than one percent of family films feature a LGBTQIA lead, and uh, we've seen no progress over the past decade. And fewer than one percent of family films uh, feature a lead with a disability, and mm. this has not improved over the past decade. And, and if you're lucky, sometimes that. Uh that uh, LGBTQIA uh, character gets played by Jared Leto. Uh, yeah. But nonetheless... Um, well, and that's... And I, I know that uh, Gina Davis's studies are not focused on uh, cis uh, actors playing trans characters. They're, I know their studies... It's about representation. ...is actually about whether or not, you know, the, the actor themselves. Mm-hmm, right. Yeah. But again, uh, so this kind of activism that Gina Davis sort of works her way into out of, you know, I think the experience of making this movie and other films, obviously, throughout her career. Presumably being a woman in Hollywood and getting into her 40s and nobody's calling her agent anymore. Yeah. And, and yeah. seeing that sort of stuff going on. And so you can sort of begin to project forward, okay, so these disparities, what they look like, and to sort of calculate them with hard facts yeah. is really fascinating. But beyond just the fascinating sort of disparity, I love the idea that she keeps demonstrating. And well, she, the, her research team alongside her, keep demonstrating that these movies are making more money. Mm-hmm. That it is, it is uh, financially solvent to actually uh, function in an egalitarian kind of way. That that actually that, that to to get get away from that disparity and get closer to a real true parity. Uh, to do that. Uh, would actually be financially a uh, wise decision on the part of Hollywood, yet it continues not to be the case. Um, so anyway, I find that to be fascinating. I, kind of pivoting from that, I, I think, and we talked about this a little bit about Tom Hanks's character and his lack of growth, but uh, I, I think it's kind of important, right? I, because so many films like this, uh, whether it's uh, you know your hidden figures or your your forty two you know your 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 Jackie Robinson movies. There's always a member of the in group of the the oppressor group, for lack of a, a more concise way to put Who's it. Who's almost always Kevin Costner. Who's almost always Kevin Costner. Learning a lesson, right? Learning about the error of their ways and learning to be a, a good a good sort. Uh, Tom Hanks doesn't learn how to be a, a good guy. He 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 says something to the effect early on that uh, girls are uh, what you sleep with, not what you coach baseball, and he pretty well feels that way till the end of the movie. Yeah. Uh, the we, the implication is that he wants to have sex with Dottie big time. Oh, yeah. He's only invested in Dottie because she's a smoke show and a great baseball player. And he it has never occurred to him that a very attractive woman could be that good at baseball. Um, she's so good that she tricks him into coaching the team, which is one of my favorite moments in the movie. Um, Gina Davis plays that entire scene. Uh, like Anytime Tom Hanks isn't looking at her, her face says... Yeah, hurry up and coach the team. Like, she's wanting him to tell her she's doing a bad job, so he'll take over, which I think is great. Yeah. But but to stay on track, like, uh, yeah, Tom Hanks never grows or changes. He stays pretty scuzzy. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's good. I mean, he gets a little less rough around the edges. He starts to treat them as uh, colleagues uh, and as people he's invested in. But there's still players till the end of the movie that he's calling Blondie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's interesting and a, and a good and smart choice to not let him have this 
overstated moment of growth because it's a factor of these movies so often. Yeah. Yeah, I think I totally tend to agree. And it also, I mean, just using the frame of baseball itself Mm -hmm. is a uh, real typical way that Hollywood in the, uh, the, the dream history making, you know, the sort of the history that never was, uh, creation in which, because baseball is so, idealized it is so nostalgized it is so full of these sort of potent ideas of americana right see our episode uh over he got game yeah yeah um where you what then you do is you use that to wash over those negative prejudicial bits of history and baseball because of its just very presence there you have a bunch of older women playing baseball because they played in this league in the 40s now they're playing in the 90s in sort of a reunion uh, moment when this exhibition opens up at Cooperstown and uh, you get again that sort of sense of baseball is what solved this problem and again baseball was definitely historically was a, a, a major sort of uh, site of integration it was a major site of having some of these really really intense conversations uh about you know gender and race and all, all and many number of things but baseball is not the bomb that killed it or cured it all killed it all interesting um not mm. the bomb that freudian slip there right. huh? it, it, it didn't do that it doesn't do that necessarily Things, social issues are too big and nebulous and unwieldy for any one thing to solve them. Right. And so that baseball becomes part of the American myth. Right. And uh, and I think part of the reason why baseball continues to struggle, if we want to work into race conversations, aside from professional hockey, it is the most uh, anglicized of the professional sports and uh, becoming less and less so. Um, especially because of Latin American um, expanse uh, in baseball. So we have a lot of black, black Latins uh, who play now. Man, but, you, this is not the venue for it, but uh, I have a friend that's really into baseball and tells me a lot about the wild stuff that goes on with the, the training camps for uh, kids coming from the DR. Yeah, and yeah. You just, ooh, man, if you you want to go down a real rabbit hole, learn about the, the training camps, not just for people who are prospects, but for people who are pro players. A, a big thing just happened to uh, David Ortiz. Uh, Big Poppy, uh, a great player, almost got straight up assassinated. Uh, which hometown. apparently was mistaken identity. <laughs> How do you mistake an identity? It's wild. I, I, David Ortiz, he's the most famous person in the DR, right? Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, as Dustin said, there, there be there is this force that's causing for there to be a little bit more um, uh, inclusion and uh, diversity within the professional baseball. But even that comes with its own like thorny, thorny tangle of problems. Right. Absolutely. And I think this mo- – oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. I'm just – again, the way we whitewash, again, sort of the, the, the ugly spots of baseball. We don't talk about the doping scandals and mm. Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. We don't talk about the fundamental racism that motivated the sort of challenge between those two as they were running at Roger Maris's home run record mm. um, there in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, whenever that took place. Uh, Arthur gave me a look that leads me to believe uh, we're, we're going to talk about – Oh, the – the delightful gem of 2019. Yes, the uh, the Bash Brothers experience. Dustin, have do you, you know about the Bash Brothers experience? Have you watched this? The lonely have you seen the, the lo- visual poem from the Lonely Island. I don't know what you're talking of about. Mark McGuire and uh, oh my god, Sammy Sosa. No, the other one. Uh, the other Bash Brother from the 80s. From the oh my god, uh, uh, Jose Canseco. Canseco. Oh okay, uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, and, and, and juicing. Yeah, it's, okay. it's all about have this. You seen it? No. So yeah, if you do want the baseball expose uh, about juicing that a league of their own is l- through the lens of the fountain. Oh my goodness! It's wild. I'm all in. Yeah, you got to check this out. It's very uh, lemonade inspired uh, in some regards. Um, it's great. Uh, this movie, speaking of baseball, relies on uh, montage a lot, as mm-hmm. we talked about a little bit earlier. I feel like it's good, and I feel like it's a, an essential part of any sports movie, right? I think it is the, kind of the. Well, baseball games are so long. Oh, man. But, but yeah. all sports films, right? All sports films have to cover typically a season of time. Even yeah. something like Warrior, which is focused on a tournament, they use a lot of montage in that still because you have to get to the climactic yeah. event. Sports is all about proving you're better than the schmucks so you can go up against the real challenge. Uh, and I think this film does a great job of just showing uh, that passage of time and them getting better. Yeah, I think it's smart because, like you, you, we'd mentioned in the review, it's it's a very repetitive sport. I mean, there's a lot of just hitting the ball and then mm-hmm. going to the bases. And it's a defensive pitching. game, yeah. so low scoring is good. Yeah, yeah right. and so I think what it does is it's very limited in its use of montage in that way mm. so that it can kind of 
pull those pieces and show those kind of exciting moments and kind of say somewhat realistic. You know, they're not making wild and crazy catches and stuff every time, except for when she does the splits behind home plate to catch the foul ball. Which is awesome. The behind her back catch. Yeah. Uh, I asked Mrs. Doctor the Monarch, uh, who was a, a catcher at uh, high school. Yeah, she didn't play the softball in college. Uh, if she had ever caught an out or a, a foul ball behind her back, and she said yes, and I've never loved my wife more. It was <laughs> the awesome. coolest thing, yeah. Yeah, but to your point, I, I think this film is very smart with just those kind of technical moments and how it puts those those uh, scenes together in a way to, one, progress the film, but never feel repetitive. Mm-hmm. Right? And it doesn't do it a lot, I think, with a lot of football movies or even fighting movies, boxing movies, or you know, mixed martial arts, like Warrior. You, you do have a lot more montage because you can switch up those elements a lot more, you know, no two fighters are the same, mm-hmm. no football game. You got so many men on the field that are doing so many different things and you can hit people different ways or whatever. But uh, I think this doesn't rely on that and, and because I don't think, in, you know, baseball is kind of the, the reason we're all here, but I think it's a much bigger story than yeah. that. And so it doesn't have to rely on that as much. And Marshall and her editor are super smart. You, you mentioned that Arthur, there's only so many things that happen in a baseball game. They're smart in that they stack those things together. They kind of know, all right, well, you can only – you slide, you steal, you get an out, you get a hit, and they do the hits together. They do the, the pop fly. You know, they, they do all the cool things in sequence, which I think mm-hmm. uh, helps that montage, like, keep its momentum when there's only, you know, four or five things you can show a player doing. It does keep it snappy because it does yeah. – it doesn't really quite work like a highlight reel where you just show, like, okay, this event, this event, this event in this game. Yeah. It is, here are all the great catches, and here – you know, yeah. I, I think that is a, a smart way to keep audience – audience interest if they're not thinking of this as watching sports center you know yeah working on them i am a big fan of shirley baker the character with like three lines who cannot read um this moment is i think the moment that sets this apart from a a a men's sports movie right um because you're you're inherently talking about a a different social dynamic right A, a group of women collaborating versus a group of men collaborating which is not to say that men and women when they get into same gendered uh, collaboration can't equally be uh, jockeying for position. We get a little bit of that um, when Madonna and uh, Rosie O'Donnell's characters first meet Kit and Dottie and Marla. Um, they're really grilling them over. Uh, but th- the speed with which these these women coalesce into a team is so cool. And they're all so supportive of Shirley Baker, this this little girl, uh, this woman, this young woman who cannot read, who is illiterate. Um, nobody makes fun of her. Nobody's mean to her. One of the players figures out what's going on, helps her out, and everybody goes, "Yay, you made the team!" It's a beautiful moment, mm-hmm. and I think is kind of like mm-hmm. endemic of these women supporting each other. Again, we talked earlier about how mean this film is to Marla, but Kitty, uh, Kit, Kit and Dottie. There we go. Yeah. Jeez, Kit and Dottie are immediately like, "We have to take her. She's great." Do you mm-hmm. see see that ball? Yeah. Um, and so there's just this. She's like Mickey Mantle. Yeah, w- yeah. They're they're refusing to to accept this uh, competition that society is this inter uh, feminine competition that society has foisted upon them. And it's just cool. And again, the, the film doesn't dwell on it too much, uh, but I think it's just a nice feature of this film. There's no like uh, in a movie about uh, a ragtag group of misfit dudes coming together. There's a lot more butting of heads, right? There's there's the guys that are always about to get into a fight with each other. Yeah, your alpha males. Yeah. yeah, and this film doesn't. I mean, yeah, they they pick on each other the same way that any group of collaborators do, but there's just this immediate support that I don't think you get from a lot of sports movies because so many sports men, movies are so masculinity centric. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's a cool feature of this film. I mean, I think your exception that proves the rule is that you're absolutely right. There is this sort of, you know, we all want to make the team, and I want to, you know, just step on your fingers on the rungs of the ladder to make my way up. Uh, the exception is the the most ragtag, the sort of where the the, the wrong stuff kind of uh, Monty Ducks, yeah, uh, sort of sports movie where where we're all terrible, but we're in this together, yeah, you know, bad news bears, yeah, yeah, and so we want to make sure Rudy plays whatever that version of Rudy happens to be. Well, and then again, as we mentioned, in expanding the syllabus, I Tanya being the other example, like. Well, no, some stories are about how even in this uh, allegedly more egalitarian, uh, you know, w- female competition, there's still going to be this uh, this outside pressure of, no, you have to be the better one. That's uh, yeah, it's interesting. It's just mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's not so, not a feature of many sports movies. All right. Well, any other uh, major thoughts on uh, A League of Their Own? I, I, I was curious to something you went back to in the uh, during. Uh, the expanding the syllabus or your review, maybe uh, mm-hmm. we talked about the histor, the you know, in inaccurate historicity of this film, 
And I'm just kind of curious. You know, we've talked a lot about book adaptations. I'm just kind of curious what makes a good historical adaptation. What what are you looking for in those moments when you're, you know, adapting a story that took place over a year or, you know, was a pivotal moment in history or maybe not a pivotal moment, but just an interesting point in history? Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting question because, I mean, you can get into just making a reenactment documentary, and those tend to be quite boring. Ken Burns. Right. I mean, yeah, I'm looking at you, Ken Burns. I mean, I think that's exactly right. What called boring, but yeah. You know, they can be. Hey, you know what? Sometimes I'm going to go ahead and say it. Ken Burns is boring. Yeah, sometimes that's that's a that's a feature, not a bug, though. I would argue. Yeah, yeah. it's important to get the you got to get the background before you get to the cool stuff. Well, I think about um, I mean, a good example here, maybe that's recent and uh, you know topical for the moment is uh, his Central Park Five documentary, which is excellent but quite slow and sluggish and all that. Uh, uh, versus Ava DuVernay's recently when they see us um, that's just dropped on Netflix, uh, that you really feel the dramatic arc. Uh, and I, I think DuVernay's uh, particular uh, depiction representation is very, very historically accurate um, and uh, strives very hard to make sure that the events are told as they were and things that were on the news or whatever are sort of reperformed in a verbatim kind of way. I think that's really, really important to what she does there. And so I do find a movie like When They See Us to be superior to a movie like A League of Their Own because of some of the liberties that it takes because I think the liberties that it takes are done so for dramatic and narrative purposes and that's fine to take liberties for dramatic and narrative purposes as long as it's necessary to come up with drama in that way if you can find drama and I think you could find drama uh, just the idea that we got women sportsters, you know, playing in the 1940s, that is a thing that is, you know, chock full of drama already. So we don't have to make all the boys leave and we don't have Major League Baseball anymore. Um, we, don't have to, we don't have to do that. We do have Major League Baseball. The Yankees are still playing, you know, the entire time uh, this stuff is going on. Well, this is the this gets us to we talked a little bit about this uh, when we talked about Outlaw King last year, the Chris Pine movie. Um, we talked about Braveheart. You know, very famously uh, lacking in uh, historicity. Um, you get that. It's the same thing, right? They made William Wallace a commoner instead of the nobleman he historically was because that's a better story. Right. Uh, somebody who does not come from the gentry uh, killing the gentry is a cooler story than a rich guy killing rich guys that have a different accent. Right. And and so, I mean, I think a, a good adaptation it, it does necessarily have to find its dramatic arc. If it, if it can do so historically, all the better. Um, if it do, if it cannot do so, it's got to make sure that it's making its choices to fudge the history um, in a way that is at least as close to faithful as possible, and uh, definitely uh, in a way that serves that drama. And uh, that's I, th- I think it's the way in which those facts are massaged. And I think the part of the problem with the League of Their Own is it it massages the wrong facts. In order to get drama, because I think the existing circumstances probably could have served just fine. I would say that's fair, yeah. Okay. And yet, well, if there are no other thoughts, let's render a verdict then on A League of Their Own. Shell for Trash, what say you, Arthur? I I really like this movie. I really have a good time with it, but I'm going to put it in trash. I I mean, as far as sports movies, as far as, you know, feminist film, if if you want to call it that, uh, you know, I, I think there are better examples of both that. I would go to, especially in a pedagogical sense, uh, and so uh, as much as it's like it's a great time, it's, you know, it's a lot of fun to watch. But yeah, it's it's you know slightly laying on top of the trash can right before I pull the bag. Fair enough, fair enough. What do you say, Dalton? Uh, this is going to go gently on somebody else's shelf. This this is a movie you buy for somebody, right? This is a movie you buy for a baseball fan um, or a Gina Davis fan. I, I but I, I get where Arthur's come from, and I agree. There's better sports movies. There's better films about. Um, the struggle for equality amongst genders, especially just in the arc of uh, the American story, the the American story, but also just you know in the arc of history, there's just better stories. But there's not a lot of there's no other women's baseball movies. I can't think of a softball movie to save my life. Um, so I think this is it as far as women's baseball movies go. Uh, there's not that many Lori Petty movies. There's not that many Gina Davis movies. Uh, and there's not that many great movies about sisters who never really stop bickering. There's no, like, big moment where they come together. Uh, and there's not that many sports movies with surprise endings. Lori Petty ends up being on another team and ends up winning. Gina Davis, the sense of protagonist of this film, loses the big game. That's fucking cool. That's just not a lot of movies like that. So while I'm with Arthur, I see why he trashed it, and I'm not super 
aggressively shelving it. I think there's enough here that's super interesting um, and enough here that's pretty novel that uh, I think it's worth shelving. All righty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I'm actually going to say trash as well. I mean, I like this movie a lot, and I love baseball, but um, I'm kind of with Arthur. I think there are better baseball movies. I think there's better feminist film uh, out there. There's better ways to engage that. Um, but it's definitely a movie that if I'm seeing it streaming, if I catch it on TV, I'm watching it. I'm always saying there's no crying in baseball. I'm always... I like the high ones. Yeah, yeah. And Mule... Nag. Nag, you know, it, it, I mean, it's, it's it's great, you know. Yeah. Uh, and so that it's it's insanely quotable. Um, John Lovett's performance, which we have talked about very little, is so mean. He's so gross. I'm and, gonna give it that tickle pickle. And uh, he's so funny. But <laughs> he's so John Lovett's in this movie. But yet so like incredible to watch, right? Yeah. It's so it's so massively entertaining that it's definitely a movie that I love. But I just I don't know that it's worth adding it to your film library. Um, so to speak. If a streaming service dropped a show where Gina Davis and Lori Petty play sisters, I would watch all of it tomorrow. Yeah. I need it. It's good. Nailed it. Netflix, get on it. Yep. There you we go. We just sold a show. All righty. Well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on A League of Their Own. Uh, we are now keeping on this train of the I Dream of Gina Marathon. And uh, we've got another movie to watch. What is it, Arthur? Uh, we're going with the lesser Scott uh, Ridley as we talk uh, Thelma and Louise. Yeah, that's right. That's about it. That's our official stance. That's the lesser Scott. That's huh? the lesser Scott. You, uh huh. We'll talk. We've talked about this on the show before. Yeah, I'll um, say the less consistent Scott. There I don't you want go. To rub anybody the wrong way. Yeah, but you, Tony's better. And the unlikely event that Ridley ever. I don't think Ridley knows. Yeah, Ridley how to listen didn't to give me Days of Thunder. Who did Tony? Mm-hmm. You know who uh, gave me Crimson Tide? Tony. Who gave me Man on Fire? Tony. Tony. I'm saying. You know who gave us Gods of Egypt? Or. Exodus Gods and Kings that's what it was Gods of Egypt was, Gods of Egypt was uh, Alex Proyas my bad <laughs> it's an expansion of uh, God of War it's a video game who gave yeah. us uh, oh what's the one where uh, Cameron Diaz uh, gets down with herself on the hood of a car the counselor the counselor is it uh, Cameron or is it that's Cameron yeah. yeah who gave us Body of Lies Nick Sanford's least favorite film of all time uh, yeah really we're just saying Tony's more consistent but yeah I'm very excited about Thelma Louise uh yeah, it's going to be a good time. We're going to ride to the end, baby. All righty. Well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.